Last week was unjust. This week was just. So, this is such a great psalm for anyone who's struggling with sin. And this week I was praying that God would bring in this morning miserable people. People who are sin-bound. People who are heavy-laden. Because this is, this was, is such a wonderful passage. I was praying that, that those who have sinned and who feel the consequences of their sin, for those who look at their situation and say, you know what, I deserve what I've got. I, this is what I deserved. And I was praying that those people would come in this morning. So, if you're miserable here today because of your sin, <laughs> it's because God listened to my prayer. <laughs> but we're going to see that there's hope in here. Because with God there is steadfast love. And with God there is plentiful redemption. So how are we going to do that this morning? We're going to look at it in five different points. First point is we're going to see that sometimes we're in the depths because of our sin. And these are on the bulletin. There's an insert in there. Uh, the second point is to cry out to God in prayer for mercy. Point number three is going to be preach the gospel to yourself. Point number four is going to be wait on the Lord. Point number five is encourage others to hope in the Lord also. So, why did I make a point to point out these points? Is so that if we get lost halfway through, I'm going to say, okay, point number two, that way you can catch up with the group and go on. It's like the elementary school kids when they get lost. Okay, we're meeting here at this time. So, all right, anyway, let's, uh, let's read Psalm 130. Psalm 130 says this. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? For with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, and we just ask, Lord, that you will open up your words to us. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to understand. Lord, I pray especially today for those who are in dire circumstances because of their sins. It's their own fault. That's why they are here today. So Lord, I pray that you'll give them hope, that you'll comfort them, that you will show them, Lord, that you forgive sins. With you there is steadfast love. With you there is plentiful redemption. Be with us this morning, O Lord, I pray. Amen. Let's start by looking at these first three verses closely. They say, Out of the depths... I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist is clearly down. He says, out of the depths I cry. It sounds like he's sinking, like the water is overflowing, like there is no way out. Can he see any light? We don't know. Does he feel any warmth? We don't know. See, we come into this psalm really kind of like halfway through the psalmist's predicament. So what brought him here? How did he end up in these depths, crying out? God doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't say. We have no idea how he got to where he is. It would be like if we saw Jonah for the very first time being thrown 
overboard. We'd have no clue why he was there. We would only see him sinking further and further down. We'd see the bubbles rising up as he sinks through the rough water. We'd see his arms and his legs flailing, driving water into his nose and into his throat as he disappears into the depths, into the water. And we would see the ship being battered and tossed, going away, getting further and further. The crew throwing things over to save their life. The storm just overwhelming. What brought him here, we would ask? Why did they throw him overboard? Is there any hope for this man who is sinking? So let's look back. Let's look back at Jonah's life and figure out what brought him to this point. And I believe this is going to be helpful as we look at this psalm. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And he says that Nineveh is a great city. It's an evil city, but he wants Jonah to preach to these people. And if these people listen to Jonah, if they repent, then God will save them. But Jonah doesn't want to do this. Jonah goes to Tarshish instead, which is in the opposite direction. He flees from God. In Jonah 1, verse 3, two times it says Jonah fleed from God. And then later on, when there's this um, uh, interchange with the, with the crew people, it says the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So Jonah knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing, and he was fleeing from God. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go, so he didn't go. He sinned. And his sin caused him to flee from God. His sin caused him to flee from everybody that he knew. Our sins cause us to flee from God. This is one of the things that sin does. It makes us flee from God. It makes us flee from God's people. How many people do you know who are really in sin want to go to church? How many of these, or if they're forced to go, will like to be in church? How many of these want to hang out with Christians? You know, in some ways they impose their own punishment, isolation, separation, misery. They bring it on themselves. So, Jonah gets in this boat. It's going away from Nineveh. He's going to go as far as he comes. This huge storm comes up. The boat's not going to make it through. It says the boat, the ship, is threatened to break up. All on board are going to be lost. It's so bad that these sailors who have sailed their entire life, and this is their career, they are afraid of what's going to happen. So they start throwing everything overboard. It's better to lose the cargo. It's better to lose our money. It's better to lose everything we have than it is to lose our life. So they all begin to pray to different gods. They each have a different god, and they begin to pray for the different gods. Does Jonah pray for his god? No. He's downstairs sleeping. The storm's bad enough, the whole, gonna ship, the whole ship is going to come apart. And he doesn't even bother to pray. He's just downstairs. The captain wakes him up and makes him pray to his God. See, this storm is clearly not natural. And they cast lots to find out why it is that this is happening. The lot falls on Jonah, and they ask him what they should do to, to make it stop, to save the ship. And Jonah says, throw me overboard. See, Jonah knew that this was the consequence of his sin. This wasn't like Psalm 129 where they were afflicted unjustly and things happened. But this was because he sinned. This was God's punishment. And he feels the weight of his sins. He feels the consequences of his sins. And he knows that if they throw him in and if he drowns, it's because of one thing only. It's because of what he did. It's because of his sins. It's because of himself. And we know that the psalmist here in Psalm 130 knows the same thing. Because he cries out to God, not for deliverance, but he cries out to God for mercy. 
He says, listen to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? You know, oftentimes God uses our circumstances so that we will see our sin. It was this case for Jonah. It's this case for the psalmist. It will be for us as well. And doesn't it seem like one of the hardest things to go through of all are something that are the results of our own sin? It's one thing to get cancer out of the blue for no apparent reason. But if I've been smoking for 30 years, who is there to blame? How much will I regret smoking when I have cancer, knowing that I could have prevented this, but I didn't? What about how bad it is to be in financial ruin, knowing that it wasn't because of the economy, it wasn't because I got laid off, but it was just because I was foolish, because I squandered my money. I could have said, no, I don't need this, but I did it anyway, or because of gambling, or because of whatever, that we can look back and we say, no, I'm here because of what I did. See, these situations we're in are because of our sins. And it is a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. Because the guilt of our sins are multiplied knowing that we were the cause of it. Knowing that we could have prevented it, but it was because of our sins. But you know, in many ways, in many ways, it's God's mercy for him to give us these consequences of our sin. Because if we didn't feel consequences of our sin, we would never repent. And it's God's grace that makes us feel this way. So that we turn to him in our depths and we cry out to him for mercy so that he can forgive us. Imagine two high school kids. They cheat on the test. One of them gets caught. One of them doesn't get caught. Do they both have the same regret about their sin? The one who gets an A and goes on? Or the one who fails and has to take summer school? Which one feels the consequences of his sins greater? There's a much greater chance of repentance for the one who gets caught than for the one who doesn't get caught. So this psalmist is talking about sins and the consequences of our own sins. So what does he do about this? We look at point number two. Point number two, he goes to God in prayer. He cries out to him for mercy. Because he knows that with God there is steadfast love. With God there is plentiful redemption. So Jonah sins. He's fleeing from God. He's now in this mess that he created himself. And he cries out to God. He dares to hope in God at the worst time. And so the question is that we have to ask ourselves, because we look at where Jonah is and we look at what he did and how he caused himself, and we say, will God listen to someone who flees from him? Will God listen to someone who sins like this blatantly, but now finds himself now in trouble, and now he cries out? Is this person just a hypocrite? Will God even listen to someone like that? That's the question that we have to ask. And the answer is yes. In fact, this is what this whole psalm was about. It's about God listening, God forgiving, God restoring fellowship. The psalmist tells us when we are in our depths to hope in the Lord. Because with him there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. But watch what the psalmist says, because we do want to avoid hypocrisy, because there can be hypocrisy in this thing if we only want relief from our consequences. We see the psalmist wants relief from his sin. He asks for mercy, not just... In fact, he doesn't ask for deliverance from his consequences. He asks for 
mercy. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, he doesn't just want to get out of the water and onto dry land. He's saying, who can even stand? If you mark iniquities, who can even stand? He knows it's his sin. And he knows that if God marks those sins, if he holds him guilty forever, he cannot stand. The psalmist comes to the place where he almost faced. If God keeps a record of my sins, who can stand before him? We are all guilty. What can we possibly do? And how you answer this is critical. Do you say, well, it's not that big of a deal. I didn't get caught. God will ignore it. Our good deeds, my good deeds, they're way better than my bad deeds. See, the psalmist didn't see that. The psalmist didn't see that. He saw the impact of his sins. He asked God for mercy. He asked God for forgiveness. And verse 4 shows us this hope that he has. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God listens to us when we cry out to our circumstances. That's why he sends our circumstances. So we feel it. And we cry out to him for mercy. So many people believe they have to get themselves out of their circumstances before they can even pray. Or else they think they'll feel like a hypocrite. Does this even make any sense when we stop and think about it? They think they have to be perfect and without sin in order to ask God for forgiveness from their sins. Or to pray to him. They think that they have to be holy before they can go to God and ask God to make them holy. They think they have to be pure before they can go to God and ask him to make him pure. They believe that they can't have sinned at all in the first place if they're going to pray to him because they'll feel like a hypocrite. Did you catch that? They feel like they have to have not sinned in order to go to God to pray. God tells us to pray so that he might forgive us, so that he might forgive our sins. So we pray to him when we've sinned so that he forgives our sins. Jesus came to save us, to make us holy, to sanctify sanctify us. And he forgives us completely. He makes us pure. He makes us holy so that he may be feared, so that he may be glorified. So go to God when you're in the depths. When your sin stings, When you feel its weight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Charles Spurgeon says this about about this psalm. We have an overhead for, for this. He says, The depths usually silence all that they engulf, but they could not close the mouth of this servant of the Lord. On the contrary, it was in the abyss itself that he cried unto Jehovah, Beneath the floods, prayer lived, and it struggled. Yes, above the roar of the billows rose the cry of faith. It little matters where we are if we can pray. But prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. Depths of earnestness are stirred by depths of tribulation. Diamonds sparkle most amid the darkness. The more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord and therefore appeals to him and to him alone. David had often been in the deep, and as often he had pleaded with Jehovah's God in whose hand are all deep places. He prayed and remembered that he had prayed, and he pleaded that he had prayed, hoping before long to receive an answer. 
Make sure that you go to God during these times. See, we don't want to heap regret upon regret. We're here because of our sins. Can you imagine if you didn't pray at all? We don't want to regret, add the regret of sinning, and we don't want to add to that the regret of not praying either. Charles Spurgeon once again says this. He says, It would be dreadful to look back on trouble and feel forced to own that we did not cry unto the Lord in it. But it is most comforting to know that whatever we did not do or we could not do, yet we did pray, even in our worst times. And he prays, He that prays in the depth will not sink out of his depth. He that cries out of the depths shall soon sing in the heights. So we need to pray to God during these times. Point number three, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because the gospel is a gospel of hope. The gospel is a gospel of steadfast love. The gospel is a gospel of plentiful redemption. See, God sends this whale to save Jonah. And in the belly of the whale, Jonah preaches the gospel to himself. In the depths, the psalmist preaches the gospel to himself. We, in our depths, need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Jonah says this. We have an overhead here. This is in Jonah chapter 2. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's in the whale's belly. He's driven from God's sight. Why? Because he did it himself. It was his own fault. It was his own sin. But he tells us, I shall look again at God's holy temple. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to these idols, but to the Lord. This is the way that Jonah in the Old Testament would have understood the gospel. This was before Christ's death and resurrection. But he knew this. He didn't know Christ, but he knew this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in the depths is when he hoped in the Lord. Because he knew there was steadfast love. He knew that there was plentiful um, redemption. The psalmist preaches the gospel to himself. In the midst of the depths, full, full in the face of the facts that it was his. He says, but with you there is forgiveness. Even though this is my fault. Even though this can all be traced back to my stupidity or anger or pride or greed or selfishness. But still with you there is forgiveness. So we must preach this gospel to ourselves if we are ever to come out of the depths. If we are ever to overcome sin. Because to overcome sin we need to know that God forgives sin. And it is through this knowledge, through this gospel that God forgives us. That Christ died for us. This is how we overcome sins. This is how we will get out of these depths. So preach the gospel to yourself daily. This is God's word. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is hope. Point number four. Wait for the Lord. We want to see how this works. And this is one of the hardest things that I had because I'm trying to figure out verse five and six. Five and six say this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. I understand the flow of the psalm, right? The psalmist is in the depth because of sins. He cries out to God for mercy. He preaches the gospel to himself, and now it says he waits. So I had to ask myself, what's he waiting for? Is he waiting for forgiveness? Is he waiting for deliverance from those circumstances? Or is he waiting for something else, something other than those two things? And the answer is yes. <laughs> he's waiting for all of those things. It's not just one thing that he's waiting for. D.A. Carson says this about the forgiveness part. He says this is followed by waiting in verses 5 and 6. He says, to be sure, the verb contains the idea of waiting with confident expectation, but waiting it is. There's nothing that we can do. Forgiveness, when it comes, is a sovereign decision and action of God. One commentator talking about the deliverance part says this, Waiting for the Lord is patiently bearing our affliction, whatever it may be, and confidently looking forward to the deliverance from it in God's good time. So, let's think about it for a minute, just about the deliverance aspect. And Jonah, let's try to figure out what he was waiting for, right? Jonah's thrown into the ocean. There's a big storm. They throw him in the ocean. He starts to sink. A whale swallows him up. He's stuck in the whale's stomach for three straight days. At what point do you think Jonah cried out to God? At what point do you think he did? I'm guessing it was immediately. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that everything made sense in a single instant. As soon as he felt the cold water, as soon as he felt himself starting to sink. I don't think he did through this logical progression you know, of his actions, trying to figure out where it was. that he did. I think he knew instantly, right? He sinned. He was being punished. He was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach to these evil people so that God would save them, and he didn't want to go. And I think as he's thinking this through, he's thinking, God wanted me to preach to these... Well, I don't, I don't think he thought this through. I think he prayed right away. But then perhaps when he was thinking about this praying and for those three days, he thought, you know, God sent me to save these people who are sinners. Wouldn't he save his own servant as well? He, I'm his servant. So we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us when he started praying. I obviously think it was instantly. So let's just go with that. Let's say as soon as he hit the water, he started praying to God that God would save him. He's in the middle of a belly's whale for the next three days. It will be three days before he gets out. He's waiting three days inside of a fish for deliverance. Of course, my imagination from wilds, what does that feel like? I'm thinking that, right? What does it smell like? You know, all that kind of stuff. It's, but he's stuck in there for three days. What does he have to do but think? I'm thinking he spent that whole three days thinking about the situation. So with us, even if God sends forgiveness right away, we're still in that situation. We're still in those same circumstances which we have built for ourselves. We're still waiting for our deliverance from God. And this waiting is a humbling ourselves before God. He's in control, not us. We wait on Him. He is our hope. But I believe that the psalmist was waiting for something more than just deliverance, more than salvation itself. We have an overhead for this. This is Michael D. Williams in a book called Far as the Curse is Found. He says this. He says, For all believers, salvation is more, is more than deliverance from the oppression of sin and guilt. And death. God wants not only to save, but also to enter relationship with his covenant community and to bless that community. Relationship 
and blessing lie alongside deliverance at the heart of redemption. God doesn't just save us from nothing and just leave us there. God saves us from something and He brings us to something. It's that forgiveness and that deliverance and He brings us into fellowship with Him, into the family of God, ultimately into heaven with Him forever. And notice in this wasting in verse in this waiting, verses five and six, he didn't wait passively. The psalmist didn't wait bored without emotion. It says he waited intensely. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen wait for the morning eagerly, right? They're tired. They just want the night to be over. They want it to be over safely. Obviously, they're waiting for enemies. But not only that, right? They watch with complete and total faith that the morning will come. No night lasts forever. There's no watchman in the middle of the night at 4 o'clock in the morning fears that the darkness will continue forever. They know in an hour or two the sun is going to come up. They wait with that faith. And so the psalmist waits with the same faith. And in the middle of this whole waiting, in verse 5, it shows what he bases everything and all of his waiting on. He says it's God's Word. He hopes in God's Word. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's the promises that God has given us. All faith is founded on a promise. God said he would do it. Our faith is that he will do what he said he would do. That's what faith is. Faith. So we have these promises that God will forgive us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he will always be with us, that all things will work out good for those who love him, for those who are called by his name. Our faith is based on the fact that we'll spend eternity with him. The psalmist puts his faith in the Word of God. We put our faith in the Word of God. Point number five. Encourage others to hope in the Lord. The psalmist is in the depths. He sees his sin. He prays. He preaches the gospel. He waits. What does he do next? Look at verses seven and eight. He reaches out. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. The psalmist starts to tell everyone, not just his friends, not just his family, but all of Israel. And he encourages them to hope in the Lord. With him there is love, there is fellowship, there is forgiveness of sins. We want to encourage others to hope in the Lord as well. We want to encourage those who are struggling, who are in the depths right now who can only see their sin, who can only see the consequences of their sin. We want to help them out of the depths to see Christ, to see His forgiveness, to see His steadfast love, to see His plentiful redemption, to feel His welcoming arms so that they may have forgiveness, that they may have fellowship again, that they may have love again. This is one of the main things for the body to do. First Thessalonians 5, verses 9-11 through say, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to abstain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, because of this, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you are doing. Do you want to do God's work? Start here. Encourage others to hope in the Lord. Let them know that with God there is steadfast love. Let them know with Him there is plentiful redemption. You know, I chose the story of Jonah to go along with this psalm because the psalmist is in depths. And he can feel his sin 
He knows he's sinned. He knows what it is. So what character in the Bible, better than Jonah, portrays that, that he knows he's sinned and he feels his sin? But the story ends differently with Jonah than it does with the psalmist, because Jonah could have really stopped in verse number 6, where he's waiting for the watchman. God will deliver him. Because he doesn't go on and tell others about what God has done. He doesn't go on and encourage others at all. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He's actually mad that God saved people from their sins. He's mad that God saved the Ninevites. You know, the story about Jonah really isn't about Jonah himself. It's about God. It's about God's forgiveness, about his love, about his mercy in forgiving sins. And the story of Jonah has been told for thousands of years. And Jesus Christ even uses the story of Jonah's being uh, the whale thing, however you say that, (laughs) as a sign of his own death, as a sign of his own resurrection. He uses that example. But in the end, we never really find out what happens to Jonah. We leave him pouting on the side of a hill because God saved these people. He's sitting next to a dead plant, looking, overlooking a city full of saved people. He continues to fight against God. He pouts. He whines. God, this is after God saved him. This is after the whole whale. He gets out of the whale, right? Three days. It's obviously a miracle. He was in there because of his sin. God took him out, and now he's pouting because God's going to rescue other people besides himself. He doesn't seem to learn at all. He didn't get what he wanted, and he's mad. So after listening to these two stories, what does the psalmist do when he's saved? He encourages others. He builds these others up. He he wants to tell everybody what God does. Jonah afterwards pouts and he whines because he still didn't really get what he wanted. He got saved from a bad situation, but he still didn't really get what he wanted. So we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at the evidence in our lives. Look Look for concrete evidence in your life. Are we more like Jonah or are we more like the psalmist? After we cried out to God, after he saves us from the situation we were in, do we say, he saved me, but here I am again. Afterwards, I still have a selfish attitude. I still sinned again. I still fell again. I sat on the hill and I pouted because I didn't get my way and I was mad. Which brings us to a question. If we are like Jonah, is there hope for those who have sinned have been forgiven, have been delivered, and sinned again. The question is, is there forgiveness after forgiveness? And I... Yes. <laughs> I lost my word there. Yes. The answer is yes. Okay, There is forgiveness after forgiveness. Because um, <laughs> there is hope. With God, there's steadfast love, right? With God, there's plentiful redemption. This is one of the things that this psalm is talking about, right? He's talking about someone who's in their depths because of his sin. It's obvious there. And we have to ask, right, is this the first time that this psalmist ever sinned? Was it a once and done deal? I sinned. God forgave me. I preached his word. I encouraged other. That was it. It was, it was wonderful. I never sinned again. No, obviously he sinned over and over and over, right? In the New Testament, someone comes up and he asks Christ, how many times must I forgive my brother? Does Christ say seven times? No, he says 70 times 70 or whatever it was, seven times 70. If we're to forgive others that much, how much does God forgive us? The answer is it's numerable. The shepherd left 99 sheep to find one strange sheep. And God's kindness is meant, God's deliverance is meant to lead us 
to repentance. So when he does these things, the psalmist is led to repentance. Jonah is led out of the whale and he gets deliverance, but it, it doesn't really look like it led him to repentance. But God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. What does this passage say about forgiveness and about redemption? With him there is plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, but plentiful redemption. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins. And when Jesus forgives our sins, he forgives all of our sins. Not just the ones we've committed up until today, Sunday morning, but all of our sins. Romans says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You know, some still might not really believe that God will forgive them or will to deliver them. They're sitting in the consequences of their sin, and this is all they see, and they don't have that hope. But stop and think about it. What is forgiveness but the act of forgiving completely? God forgives completely. Think about the prodigal son, right? He's in the pigsty because of what he did. He squandered away everything. What does the father do when he sees him? He runs to him. He gives him the best coat. He gives him new shoes. He gives him a ring. He throws a banquet for him. He welcomes him into his home, into his family, into his fellowship. He doesn't hound him for what he did wrong. He forgives him. And this is what God does for us. It is why Jesus came to the earth to suffer and to die to forgive our sins. The band can come up. If you are painfully and fully aware of the consequences of your sin, and if you are in the depths because of your sin, cry out to God in mercy. He will hear you. He will forgive your sins. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Wait on the Lord. Encourage others to hope in the Lord also. Because with Him there is steadfast love. With Him there is plentiful redemption. Father God, we come before You now. And Lord, we pray that You'll make obvious our sins to us, Lord. That we might repent of them. And we would like to pray that you make it obvious to us before these circumstances overwhelm us and drive us into the depths. Yes, it would be better to ask for your forgiveness before being in the depths. But Lord, we praise you that there are hope, that there is hope when we are in the depths, because you forgive us there. Jonah cried out there. The psalmist cried out there. We cry out there. Lord, we cry out from your depths. Forgive us our sins, Lord. Not just deliver us from the situation that we put ourselves in, but Lord, let us see something greater. Let us see you. Let us see your love. Let us see your forgiveness. Lord, let us not see, like Jonah did, just a chance to get out of the storm, even if it's in a whale's belly, just as long as I'm on dry land. But let us be like the psalmist, Lord, so that we might encourage others afterwards. Lord, your forgiveness, your mercy, your love, your deliverance is meant to bring us to repentance. So, Lord, bring us to repentance today. Lord, let us hope in you. Lord, let us pray in the depths. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your redemption. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. And as we sing this.